Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. I'm your host, Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity, and in the last four years, we've given away more than $250,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you'd like to contribute to this sponsorship fund or to this podcast, please join our patron community today. It's really easy, and it starts at a dollar a month. That's only about 25 cents per podcast episode. Go to patreon.com forward slash renew the arts to learn more. Recently, Justice had the opportunity to talk with Joseph Pinzak, a pastor and the main songwriter for the band Hallowell. The conversation centered on the communal importance of art, whether on collaborative musical projects or on community art galleries. Woven into the fabric of Joseph's stories, one can detect the consistent presence of God's faithful and often subtle providential care. It manifests itself in small acts of gracious giving and patient waiting. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and please check out Joseph's work with Hallowell at hallowellmusic.bandcamp.com. That's H-A-L-L-O-W-E-L-L music.bandcamp.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and carving some time out of your day. Um... First of all, congratulations on Hallowell. It's an absolutely beautiful album. Thank you. How did you make it? <laughs> well, well, it was a uh, a two year process. It involved uh, seeking some help from two foundations that ended up being very generous towards the project, and that's how I was able to involve so many different musicians. I think it ended up being close to 20 contributing musicians on the album. So that would not have been possible without uh, these two very generous people who are here in New England and who have appreciated projects I've done in the past, Bifrost being what they were most familiar with. Um. And so, yeah, it's been two years, really. I mean, the songs were um, just collecting over the past, well, so the six or seven years that I had been in Burlington up to that point. Uh, I had just been, I record things on voice recorder on my phone and uh, and just had built up enough of those to where I thought, I think I want to record these. And I had moved on from Bifrost when I moved to Vermont, um, my friend Isaac and I started that when I was living in Connecticut. And so we moved to Vermont and, uh, I was quite preoccupied with a lot of different projects here. And so kind of put music on hold for a while. So yeah, it's been wonderful to get back into music and recording. I'm just thrilled with how it all came out and, and to be able to make a vinyl and to be able to release it through great comfort records, which some really great and supportive longtime friends, um, Lenny Smith and Daniel Smith run that label. Uh, yeah. Um, along with Marion, uh, Smith and Ellen, the, those are, that's Lenny's, uh, Marion is Lenny's wife and Ellen is 
married to Daniel, but, um, yeah, so they all run it together and they, they actually put out, uh, the first Bifrost record. So there was a relationship there that goes back pretty far. And so, yeah, to be able to do yeah, with them was wonderful. And, um, and just, I'm just happy that, you know, some people have heard it so far and <laughs> I want, I want more people to mm-hmm. hear it, but that's just, that's the way it goes. Let's rewind a little bit, actually, since you mentioned Bifrost. How did you get into playing and recording music in the first place? And uh, kind of what's what's the story there, creatively speaking, that led you through, well, you just mentioned Bifrost, and then other things all the way to Hallowell? Mm-hmm. Uh, I started playing bands when I was in college, um, and that really continued through um to when I went to seminary in Boston and when I was in Boston I mostly was just focused on my work uh, being in school but um there was always there's always been a songwriting or music component to things I was doing even there um and so yeah I just have always gravitated towards the musical community and I'm just such a huge fan of other people's stuff. And I, um, I'm a a pretty obsessive, uh, follower of new music. And, and so, yeah, it's always been a part of, not always, uh, didn't really grow up with it, but, um, since college, it's been a part of what I do. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, do you do you typically write songs um, like from the guitar? Like, do you start with the guitar, or yeah, what's your, what's your baseline instrument? Yeah, the guitar. I mean, I'm I am a drummer. I played drums in the bands, the original bands that I was in in college, and then um, and then but then started playing guitar, and I write mostly through you know using the guitar. But this album is the first time I started figuring out the piano and recorded well two of the songs the piano songs didn't make it to the record but maybe they'll be released some other time but um mm-hmm. the final song on the Hallowell record was uh, really one of the first piano songs I've ever wrote so yeah just messing around and figuring out how to make it sound okay <laughs> Is uh, yeah. is my relationship to the piano? I'm in no way trained in theory, so I just try to make it sound good. What uh, culminated to the into the work of Bifrost? Like, what what are the roots of that work? Yeah, that is uh, kind of a fun story. Mostly just because uh, when Isaac. Wardell and I started that. It was just going to be um, us and a few our buddies that we had kind of been playing music with for a long time. Um, the singer of my college band, his name is Trent Dabbs. He has a, a pretty remarkable long solo career. He's a musician in Nashville now. Um, through you know, Trent actually sings on the Vine Frost record, and then just some of his friends that he had made in Nashville at the time. Kate York was one. Um, uh, another connection was uh, 
through my college band. It was called Kelly Wingate. Uh, it was four guys in the band, and we had a girl's name for <laughs> the title of our band. So we would show up, and they were expecting like a solo female artist. And it was these four guys in all black. And, a bunch of guys. And <laughs> playing very slow, moody music. Um, but yeah, so uh, <laughs> we uh, we were just one of the moments of like, wow, I can't believe that happened. One of our favorite artists was at the time and still is is Dennis and Whitmer, and uh, and somehow uh, he ended up opening for us for some show. This is when we were still uh, uh, in college, uh, and so we just we still talk about that. Like I cannot believe Dennis and Whitmer was our opener. <laughs> so yeah, he uh, <laughs> he sings um, the Mourner's Prayer on that first record, Como Spirit. Mm. So a lot of it was just um, uh, Lee Nash from Sixth Sense, Then the Richer was another Trent connection in Nashville. A lot, a lot of it was just friendships, and it just kept growing as people heard about it. And we had this core of songs that we had recorded at the Oldham Studio in Kentucky. Um. Will Oldham, Bonnie Prince Billy, his brother Paul has a studio in the beautiful hills of Kentucky. And if anybody's looking for a place to record, you should go there because it's incredibly reasonable rates and it's an amazing experience in an old farmhouse. Um, we took those recordings and then just started sharing them with people. And so that's how Dave Vazan came on and Damian Gerardo and Rosie Thomas. And, you know, hard times was recorded out in Seattle and Dave Zahn's like hanging out with um Josh Tillman happened to be at his house and he was like, Come on, hop in the car, we're gonna go record this song. And he's like, Okay. And so <laughs> Josh Tillman is is on that record and I didn't even know who he was at the time. Of course he's now Father John. Oh funny. Um Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But yeah, so there's all these people on there and it just kind of ballooned to be something much bigger than we ever envisioned it being. And uh and I'm yeah. Why I'm do you just, think it was so attractive for people to to jump on and collaborate? Because we 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 try to facilitate and inspire collaboration, and there's something special about those moments where it's like something just makes sense about it. And I'm wondering if you were ever able to put a finger on what it was about. I I mean, the only guess I have, I mean, we were just, and I'm still kind of stunned when I listen to that. I go back and listen to it. I cannot believe all the people that are on this and said yes to us. Um, I, the only thing I can think is I, I think we were really trying hard to hone in on a certain sound and we just kind of had it in those early recordings. There were like three core songs that we were working with that we were sharing. And I think it just, you know, there was a certain vibe to them and a certain aesthetic to that album. I think that just people were drawn to, um, and it pretty much follows through the whole record that the, the same sound, and that's largely because of Isaac and Mason Neely, who were really, you know, had their hands on the whole thing in the control room. And mm-hmm. yeah, Mason is just incredible. He's now in London doing all kinds of different projects with Universal, um, mostly with movies and yeah, just other bands and. He's an incredible drummer, and so the drums on the album, it's all Mason. Uh, the bass is just 
to me, it's, it's about as close to what I want a bass to sound like <laughs> always. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the thing I can get. And then also just the whole, um, you know, these old hens are interesting and that's, and that's kind of new. Um, and sort I think sort of fascinating for people. I remember hearing that Colin Malloy from the Decemberists heard the Lara Gibson song and, and was just really drawn to it. Um, because of the word. I mean, then it makes sense. The words are very, it sounds like a Decemberist song, you know? <laughs> and mm, I think, I, mm-hmm. if I had to guess, I don't know if he's inspired by hymns, but his lyrics are always, I think they, they come across as like him, him like he uses old words. And mm-hmm. yeah. So he uses words like lum. I don't know how many people yeah, slip the word loam into their album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, but I don't know. I think that's it's it's definitely stood the test of time. I think that record, you know, is is something that um I think I think it's aged well. Absolutely. I completely agree. I, I I refer to it as as a kind of a um, a good standard for for worship writers and uh, worship leaders to look to uh, in some senses um, because it was done really well and it has stood up very well with time. So, congratulations Thanks. on a job well done for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And uh, so after your involvement at Bifrost, what what did you go on to do then? Um, yeah, so I was uh, working as a campus minister at University of Connecticut at the time when that we started Bifrost, and I was there for seven years. And then we moved to Vermont, to Burlington, to start a church called Redeemer, and then we started a an arts, we actually, before we started the church, we started an art gallery, art gallery called New City Gallery, right in downtown Burlington. And so that's, that's really what brought us up to Vermont. And we've been doing that now for eight years. Nice. And, uh, what kind of, what, what was, what inspired you to set up an art gallery of all things for a musician (laughs) to do? (laughs) Uh, well, we mostly we found this amazing space for all for next to nothing. I mean, that we this landlord really just understood, I think, what we were trying to do and was very generous and has never raised the rent on us. And uh, and the space is well, just, go ahead and tell the story of, of you meeting the oh, landlord yeah. <laughs> or how that ended up working out. Yeah, I was just looking was for great. an office. Uh, we had just moved to Burlington, I was walking down Church Street, which is the main pedestrian kind of downtown center of Burlington. And um, I saw a release sign in this space and just called the number. And the next day, this 93-year-old man met me at the door and took me upstairs. And when I saw that it was like 1,300 square feet and beautiful hardwood floors, vaulted ceilings, these old gas lanterns hanging down, I just thought, well, this is way more than we could ever afford. And of course, I don't, have the money for this just for, I'm not going to spend this much for an office and so sorry to waste your time. And 
he's like, no, no, no. What would you mm-hmm. do with this if you if you had it? And I'm like, well, we can't afford it. But if we had it, I would probably we'd probably start a community arts space because this looks like an art gallery belongs here. <laughs> so that's really right. how it happened. And he said, great, sounds great. Why don't we? Why don't we do that? Why don't you pay me what you're going to pay for your little office, and we'll call it a deal. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just—he ended up being a good friend, and uh, and it, sadly he died two years ago. And mm. I mean, you talk to all of his tenants. I mean, he owns lots of buildings in Burlington. You know, I think he died when he was 95 or something, and he was the most involved kind, responsive, you know, generous. I mean, he would make, he was a carpenter. He would make these little boxes for all of his tenants. Um, and, and like hand deliver them as like a thank you. I mean, he's just one of those guys and, you know, no lease. It's just a handshake. So I was like, <laughs> I went and talked to his other tenants. I said, is this guy for real? Like he, he says, is this handshake real? Deal. Like, is he? And every one of them said, best landlord I've ever had. He's never touched the rent. He's, he's the kindest, sweetest person. And he, and he was. So we felt from the very beginning, like we've been gifted this space. Like, what are we going to do with it? So it really took like, a year and a half, really two years to figure out exactly what it would be and ended up being a a gallery with uh, three studios connected to it, which are artists in residence studios. So we've now had close to 30 artists come through the space and each one gets it for six months and they get their space for free in exchange for working a day of hours. So it really becomes kind of like an artist co-op is how it runs. And mm-hmm. we've increasingly had, well, we have four shows a year, so it's a very light load in terms of planning. We try to plan things a year out. And, uh, and increasingly we have guest curators, which are often local artists who have ideas they want to pitch to us for shows. And so we facilitate those and, we do a Sunday night folk series that a local, different local folk musician usually runs and curates. Um, we've kept it really simple and I'm very happy that we did because it just, it really kind of runs itself because of the simplicity of the model. And yeah. it's, it's been a great joy. My wife is an artist, so I had kind of a, some idea of, <laughs> of what that would, what it would take to, run a gallery, but really I had no clue. And I just asked lots of questions. Mm-hmm. You know, when we first got to town, I had a round table of some artists that I just really admired their work and said, guys, what do you think this should be? And what does Burlington need? And what does Burlington really not need more of? And then we just kind of listened to their answers and did that. I'm inspired by your willingness to listen. I think that uh, even for myself, like trying to work on, uh, I don't know, casting a, a large vision for Renew the Arts, we've recently been been really um, challenged but also encouraged as to how beneficial listening can be. And uh, it's amazing to see you have that foresight whenever you are setting up shop to just listen first and kind of respond to the felt needs in that community. Yeah, I think it's, it's, 
hugely important and it's hard to do because you have lots of ideas that you're excited about and that you want to execute, but which may not actually be what that place needs. And you only find that out until you get the news from people who've been there for a while and can tell you all the things they love about the place and all the things they can't stand and wish someone would do, you know, <laughs> and you don't know mm-hmm. those things until yeah. it's like, Oh man, okay. It starts to shape, you know, or at least, yeah, change the vision in ways that maybe it needs to, that otherwise it wouldn't. Right. How, uh, I'm interested in knowing what your vision was at first. Like, um, obviously you talked to this really sweet landlord who gave you the space and, and it seemed really providential. Um, but, but why was that in your mind in the first place? Like, what's the value? Like if I had to, um, if I had to like justify this, this kind of project to someone, it's like, well, here, like, this is what we're trying to accomplish with it or something like that. You know, what was the value in your head and what was the vision you had? That's a great question. Um, I think for me, um, there's a few things. One is, um, you know, art matters, culture matters. It's all, um, important because it's human beings doing it and human beings are made in God's image and wherever you find human beings creating things, you're going to find a mixture of, uh, truth and untruth and, and, and then the, all the tensions in between. And, um, I think it's like, you know, a gallery of any kind is you're on holy ground because you're, looking at something that was made by someone made in God's image. And so there's like that alone, I think um, making that connection sort of finally turned the light on in my brain of why I should take time to understand art that's sometimes hard to understand, you know, why Mm. I should try to listen to this voice because it's clear it's somebody's voice that they're speaking and, uh, well, okay, so I can make that connection when I can can recognize this this is someone who has deep value and dignity and uh and of course is is loved by god and uh and created by god so so there's that um this whole breakdown of all things being sacred, the difference between sacred and secular comes down when you can say that everything's been touched by the fingerprints of God and therefore everything is mm-hmm. holy and there's nothing that's just merely common. And, um, to me, there's a great, there's lots of, um, wonderful, uh, things that you can pull out of when you reflect on the sacraments and what those are implying about physical reality that, Jesus not only took on our human body, um, God in the flesh, but um, he also took up very common things and infused them with deep spiritual meaning. And so common bread and wine take on this power. And Mm. so, yeah, I think that's what artists do. They're taking up common things and they're, um, they're doing things which are like what Jesus does when he 
takes up bread and wine that, you know, I think the, the danger of course, is that you think that you are becoming uh, God <laughs> and that's, uh, that's always the danger. <laughs> the danger of an artist. Uh, is, <laughs> that's uh, always a danger. Yeah. It's the ego, the ego, which says, and therefore mm. I am God, I am Godlike because I am creating, you know, <laughs> I am the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's worth the risk because you're getting close to something. I think there, there's always all those places where there's a danger of it going wrong. There's also great potential for it being uh, going very right and being so powerful and so beautiful. Um, and I think that sometimes what scares people about the arts is like, yeah, but it could go so wrong. And <laughs> and there's mm. and there it forces this kind of pushing into areas where there aren't, um, it, it feels like, Oh, this could go one way or the other. And I don't like that feeling. Um, mm-hmm. but I think the best art it does, it's meant to destabilize you. And, um, you know, and so, and so that's why we get frustrated with art. And that's why I, I myself, like it took me a long time to really even be able to <laughs> go to a place like, you know, MoMA or something in New York and, and, and not roll my eyes and be like, Oh my gosh, this is so self-indulgent. And, <laughs> and the ego is just like pulsing. <laughs> I could feel it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. that's like, you know, it needs to be said, like, come on, this is, this is like, um, I always appreciate art where I can really tell there's craft and there's, and there, there was a difficult, there was a process that was involved in creating this. And, you know, sometimes yeah. that's like you're being really thoughtful about uh, conceptual art that looks like it was lazy, but actually there was a whole lot of work behind it. And I think removing your judgment hat is always a good thing. <laughs> and thinking that you know, right. you know what was really going on behind the, behind the scenes, you know, the motives of this artist. Um, Mm-hmm. I think that's always a good thing to do. And at the same time, I don't think that means that we can never say something is just bad <laughs> or lazy right. or like ego. What's What's easier is to stay judgmental all the time. Yes. And and uh, we all do it. Yeah, yeah. We it, it, and be able to say that you know everything's. Um, it's funny, a lot of times, I, you know, people have this perspective of, it's an ideological perspective on art, which is, you know, you can't judge it. There's, who's to say what's good art and what's bad art for, you know, for any other person or, or for, you know, if there's yeah. any objective standard. But a lot of times, in practical terms, I've found those people to be more judgmental on other art when in, in real day-to-day interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really fascinating because it's almost it's almost impossible, and I'm certainly not saying everyone who holds to that ideology practices that. But I have uh, I have seen it a lot, and it's funny that uh, it's like um, I'd rather have the practice of saying um, I'd I'd have I'd rather have the ideology that says I am looking for something good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not everything is good and have the practice of humility and saying this is probably better than i think it is (laughs) yeah you know what i mean yeah i think so 
I think so. And I always, I never regret doing that. And I often regret um, this sort of cynical, judgmental posture that sometimes I take towards certain things. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of like you can never go wrong with be, being hesitant to judge and, and, and yeah, like you say, being, being humble. So, um, how has that informed the leadership of your gallery and what kind of, uh, I don't know about surprise stories, but like what in leading a gallery with this like perspective you have on creativity that's deeply rooted in your faith, what are, what are, what's some of the fruit that you've seen, um, come to fruition over the years? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that was true from the beginning, I mean, it was started by a group of artists um, and myself. And, you know, one thing from the beginning that we did not want to do was um, create a sort of bubble around um, our community of people that we already know. And and certainly not, um, we didn't want this to be a sort of gallery for Christians, Um we, mm-hmm. we didn't want to be exclusive to, uh, to Christians, of course, as in excluding them. But, um, but we, um, we really wanted to, this to bless artists in the city who are working really hard to advance what they, um, you know, their vision and their career. We wanted it to really tangibly help artists. And I think, um, yeah, seeing, Joanna Taft's vision at the Harrison Center in Indianapolis, it was hugely um, informative, influential on some of the decisions we made early on, and it still informs um, our vision. It's really worse if, if you haven't gone out there. I think, did you say that you had been out there before? I haven't been there. I've, I've had a couple conversations with Joanna Taft, and... Mm-hmm. Um, She's the, she's inspiring to talk to, but I haven't been out to the gallery actually. So what yeah. was so informative or well, inspiring about because, that? Well, because um, their vision is uh, to create a space. They're, they their space happens to be uh, one big huge city block. It's this massive building that includes uh, the church, but um, I would say almost half of the rest of the building, which is at least a full city block is devoted exclusively to the Harrison Center, and it's become an arts institution in Indianapolis, um, and it is helping so many different artists. So there's like 37 art studios that are, uh, you know, rented by working artists, and then um, I think mm-hmm. there's four different gallery spaces. And so I had just never seen a church be so generous with their space and be so intentional um, to say art matters and artists matter. In other words, we just don't, we don't just love art and the, the accoutrement that sort of like now adorns our church space and makes us look more relevant. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. um, but we want to love artists and bless them and like, give them space and also do shows which are challenging and interesting and anybody would want to come into and see, not just sort of like our little um, tribe. 
So that is remarkable what they do and have done and really are continuing to mm. do. So, and, and, you know, and so what's great is you see something inspiring like that and you think, well, we have to, we could never do that because we don't have that kind of space. And, and of course we don't, I mean, our gallery is very small, but we did have these connected rooms that um, were kind of directly physically connected to the gallery space. And so that's, that's where we kind of got this idea. Let's start a residency and we do it a little different from the Harrison center. We don't, you know, we don't charge the artists, um, but that's because we're actually asking them to, um, you know, to work and help run the space. So it's just a different model. And I think wherever you are, you can work with your own limitations, but just that those core things of loving art because it's, it's produced by someone made in God's image and worthy of our time and listening to, and, you know, struggling over and then loving artists. Cause again, like we want to build relationships with people and, and see their lives be better. Sorry to interrupt. I want to take just a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. Without your help, we literally couldn't afford to keep doing this. I want to offer a special thanks to our newest supporters, R. Christopher Teichler and Daniel Reading. Thank you both so much for your support. And if you'd like to contribute to this podcast and this movement, please join our patron community today at patreon.com forward slash renew the arts. So, um, yeah, back to Hollowell. Uh, mm-hmm. How, how, what are you, what are the moments you're most proud of there? And, uh, and the, the making of the album, you know, any, any good stories there and, and, um, and how has it been received? That, those are three really big questions. Attack them how you like. Yeah. 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 Um, well, the, um, some highlights, I guess. Um, I, so there's, I guess, um, three or four, maybe more original songs. So it's, you know, my lyrics and original music, and then the rest are retuned hymns. And so um, one of the songs that I wrote that was an original was, um, I wrote uh, in tribute to Fred Rogers. And, you know, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and, you know, watched as a kid every day and was just one of those kids that was really impacted. And um, I had no idea this documentary was coming out and I certainly didn't think um, anything would happen with this song. But um, as we finished recording it and uh, we had this idea of, um, of a make creating kind of a bridge. We just felt like the song needed that. And, uh, and during the bridge to, to collect some of these clips, uh, from, from the show mm-hmm. and we put that together and, and then of course, you know, you just can't grab <laughs> stuff from a show like that and not ask for <laughs> permission. Um, and so I wrote, uh, you know, it was one of these long shots, like, well, there's no way they're going to say yes to this. Um, or probably ever respond. <laughs> right. Because uh, at that at that point, I knew that the documentary was coming out. I'm like, there's just they're so busy, and so I wrote the Fred Rogers Company in in Pittsburgh, and I sent them the song, and 
asked for permission to use the clips and it took like a month to, I didn't hear from them for a while. I'm like, Oh, well, <laughs> we're not going to be able to use those clips. <laughs> and then I got this, yeah, this email, great email saying, we love the song. We, we give you full permission to use the clips. You know, thanks for asking, you know, here's the, you know, we set up a, um, you know, percentage of like royalties that would go mm-hmm. to Fred Rogers company. And then, uh, the guy said, um, but the one issue is, you know, Francois Clemens is, is in all of these clips and we can't give permission, uh, for him, like mm. on his behalf, like he has, he has to give you that directly because he's an individual artist. He's, you know, he won Grammys for, uh, his, uh, Porgy and Bess songs. He, he had recorded some stuff on Broadway and, Oh wow! You know he's an opera singer. He's like he sings gospel music too. I mean, he does all these different projects. Wow. So he's an artist, and so, yeah. right? So he's like, we can't give permission for him. So you're gonna have to track him down. And I'm thinking, oh, oh man, well this is all for naught. Like I was all excited, you know, that they gave permission. Of course, I'm not gonna be able to find Francois. And Francois is Officer Clemens on on the show and he's been, you know, all over the internet. And of course, since the documentary came out, um, he's, there was just this moment, um, that was really important. I think during the civil rights movement, you know, Fred Rogers in 1969 had him come on and as officer Clemens was one of the first reoccurring black characters on any, especially children's TV show. And, uh, and then, um, of course, the scene, the famous scene where they sit and put their feet in the same little baby pool, uh, is a hot day, you know, and that mm-hmm. was radical because, you know, African Americans are being kicked out of, of public pools and chemicals are being thrown in when they were swimming. I mean, just awful, just horrible yeah. stuff yeah. segregation. And so anyways, um, I looked him up on the internet and found out fairly quickly that he was living literally down the road from me. No, (laughs) no. And, uh, yes. So he lives, uh, he has taught at Middlebury college, which is right down the road from where we live. Um, for 25 years, he taught music there and he recently retired and is still, I think he's considered like artist in residence there. And, and, uh, and so, but still, I mean, he doesn't know me. And so I looked up his email on the Middlebury website and emailed him thinking there's no way I'm going to hear from him. And then a month later I get this email with all exclamation points <laughs> saying, <laughs> Mr. Joseph, I would, <laughs> he doesn't know me. I would love the song. I would love to give you permission. And not only that, like I want to sing on this song with you. Wow. So that that was a pretty fun day to get that email from him. And so yeah, he I went down and picked him up and drove him back to Burlington and we spent a day with him recording um just harmony vocals on Another World, which is which is on the record. And so yeah, not only did we get to use those clips from Mr. Rogers, but on the song, there is Francois' voice from 1969 and then Francois' voice from 2018 uh, right there. <laughs> so it, it was pretty surreal. 
Yeah. And, uh, and he absolutely loved the whole experience. And he said, he said, this is actually the first time I've ever recorded in a studio. Anytime I've ever been recorded, I've been on stage, either performing gospel um, with the Harman, the Harlem spiritual ensemble or singing opera or doing the Broadway thing. <laughs> wow. So I've never actually gone. He's never been a in a studio. studio. Huh. So he's all excited and he, and he wants to start a project of, of me and him writing these songs. And he is just like dead set on, we're going to do this whole thing. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, of course, Francois, whenever you want me to show up and do something with you, I'm there. Yeah. So he he is uh, his memoir is coming out in the uh, in the spring, and so it's just all about you know his experiences on Mister Rogers' Neighborhood and his friendship with Fred Rogers. And yeah, if anybody hasn't seen the documentary, you must go watch it. It just it's an hour and a half therapy session that you you need. <laughs> everybody needs absolutely that's a that's amazing that's an incredible story let's go ahead and actually yeah, uh let's go ahead and wrap up this conversation right about there i do want to have a little bit of an extended conversation for our patreon backers because you talked at the very beginning of this conversation about um some people so, and we had we had talked about it before, but some people who supported Hollowell financially and really made it feasible. And I really want to talk about patronage and its role in this album, but also really for our listeners who are artists, um, if you have any insight on those kind of interactions and um, welcoming patrons into the the process, or you know being prepared to to share with potential patrons. Um, does that sound good to you? Totally. Awesome. All right, yeah. so um, so we'll jump into that conversation in just a minute, but I want to wrap with the song. Do we have permission to, to play Another World here at the end of this podcast episode? Of course, yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was amazing, and uh, we're going to leave our listeners with Another World um, on the album Hollowell by artist... Oh, wait, I guess it's Hallowell by Hallowell. Is that correct? Yes, self-titled, okay. yes. Self-titled. The band's Hallowell. Uh, leading artist on this is Joseph Pinzak. Thank you so much, and we'll jump over to that other conversation now. <laughs> 